According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. Hebrews 9, picking up where we left off last week, we're in the midst of a really difficult section, and I hope, well, I trust that the Father and His faithfulness, the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, is going to lead us through even the deep things of God, taking us through these uh, heavenly scenes. Our Savior went to heaven when He ascended after His work on the cross, and He took His blood and He cleansed the heavenly temple. We want to be clear on how this happened and why this happened and what the consequences are for us now that we operate in a cleansed heavenly temple and the blessings we have in our Melchizedek priesthood in Christ to function in the Holy of Holies in the third heaven. And so this is what we're looking at here this morning. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking our Father for His faithfulness once again to lead us into these deep truths. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth, rejoicing in the grace provision we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we thank you for salvation in this present age, that born-again believers today are baptized into union with Jesus Christ himself. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, Father, we are a heavenly people with a heavenly calling. I thank you for our Savior, not only what he accomplished on the cross, but what He continues to accomplish, seated at Your right hand. I thank You for the Apostle and High Priest of our confession and for the living hope in which we stand. All of these truths come to focus today, this hour, this morning, as we study these, uh, these verses here in Hebrews chapter 9. So we call upon You to open our eyes to explain these things, that we might live them out for the glory of our Savior. I thank You and I praise You, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Everything that's earthly is uh, painted a picture, but it also hindered access to glory. And we want to be clear on that. Verse 8 says, the Holy Spirit signifies this, that the way into the holy place, that's the heavenly holy place, is not yet disclosed while the earthly tabernacle, that outer tabernacle, still stands. So the replica had a purpose. Both the, the tabernacle they built in the wilderness and carried around all those years, Solomon's temple that they built on a permanent basis till it was destroyed. Uh, Ezra, when he rebuilt the temple that King Herod uh, remodeled and, and expanded, that was the temple on earth at the time Jesus walked the earth, and it was still standing when the apostle when uh, Hebrews was written. It had not yet been destroyed. Uh, but be that as it may, while the earthly replica stands, access to the to the heavenly reality is not disclosed. In other words, it paints the picture, but it doesn't get you there, all right? It teaches the doctrine, but it's limited. It's teaching based on externals, based upon physical requirements. The washings are all physical washings. There was no Levitical washing that made the worshiper perfect in conscience. And that's a huge difference between what they had and what we have today as a part of the body of Christ. And so... Again, verse 8, the, the Holy Spirit signifies this, that the way into the holy place has not been disclosed. If the high priest could go in there, he got further than anyone else got. 
You know, you got through the first gate, you got through the courtyard, you get into the holy place. If you're a priest or a Levite, you can get into the most holy place only one man, one day a year. The great high priest on the Day of Atonement was the only time that, uh, that, that a sinner could approach the holiness of God and stand before that Shekinah glory without being killed. And if he did all the sacrifices properly, if he followed all the procedures, did all the ritual, if he did everything according to the commands, he could go in there, accomplish the annual atonement, and then, and then what? Turn around and come right back out. <laughs> all right? Nobody, nobody through the Holy of Holies in that earthly replica ever crossed through the heavens as Jesus did. No one ever crossed through the heavens into the presence of God the Father. The closest Aaron or any high priest could get was in the Shekinah glory of the earthly replica. And so uh, we see in verse 9 that the outer tabernacle, the, the, the earthly temple, is just a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Not like the blood of Christ and getting saved today, all right? Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Now, we want to be very clear on this as well. The church is not the time of reformation that that verse is talking about. The Melchizedek priesthood, what you and I have in Christ, we are not a reformed Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood gets its reformation in the millennium, in the millennial kingdom when Christ returns, when he builds a new temple in, the, in Jerusalem for the millennium, when the Zadokite priesthood operates as the reformation of the Levitical priesthood. We, t- we studied that last week and the week before. Now where we are today, looking at heaven and looking at the cleansing, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, notice a high priest of things that aren't here yet, a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So he did not go into the holy place on earth. He was hanging on the cross, remember, and the veil of the temple was rent in two. He didn't go in there. He didn't have to go in there. But when he was buried and he rose again and he ascended to heaven, that's where he went. And he ascended to heaven and he had several things he had to do in his ascensions, plural. I believe there were three ascensions. There was the ascension, this one that we're seeing here, for the cleansing of the heavenly temple. There was also an ascension whereby he led captivity captive, where he went down to Sheol and he brought every believer out of Sheol, out of paradise, and he transferred paradise to the third heaven. By the time the Apostle Paul was caught up to paradise, he was in the third heaven. He was not in Abraham's bosom in Sheol. And I believe that was his second ascension when he led captivity captive. His third ascension was this final ascension when uh, the disciples watched him go up from the Mount of Olives in uh, 10 days before Pentecost uh, after completing a 40-day resurrection ministry on this earth. And so when he ascended, he did not enter through the shadow, through the replica, through the earthly temple. He entered into heaven itself. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. You see, when you show up with a goat blood or you show up with an animal that died in your place, that's a substitute who represented you. For Jesus, there is no substitute. There was nothing to represent him. He himself was the spotless Lamb of God. He himself stood before the Father approved. 
The Father was well satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, it says. Hebrews 9.12. And there'll be more later in the chapter too. Uh, we, we come back to this theme in verses 23 and following. Talking about the blood and, and how He cleansed the heavenly temple. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He opened it once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The glory of Jesus' sacrifice is once and for all. The, the shame or the disappointment, the limited nature of the Levitical sacrifices is they have to do it again and again and again and again. And uh, if they do it perfectly, and He lives, <laughs> He lives to do it again next year. Uh, every year, here comes the Day of Atonement and another reminder of sin. The national sin of Israel. We're going to talk about that today. Having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 13 then, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. And all of that is true. That is an if statement, but it's all true. You read Leviticus and you read about all those offerings. You read about the goats and the bulls and the heifers. You read about the sprinkling and you you read about how that priesthood could be bodily cleansed. It's for the sanctification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And that's what we have today in our priesthood in Christ, that we are cleansed. We have body, soul, and spirit. We are cleansed. We are complete in Christ. And how much more? It's a rhetorical question. Uh, How do you measure infinity? It is infinitely more. It is infinitely more so much as a shadow is only teaching principles, but the reality provides the truth of, of God's plan. And so how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse us? And it keeps on cleansing us. We walk in the light as He is in the light, and the blood of Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin. That is the present ongoing cleansing that we have, the sanctification that we have by the blood of Christ. And that's a glorious thing. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And here's where we pick up from where we were uh, a week ago. And uh, I'll advance our slideshow to get caught up here, verses 13 and 14. Animal ritual provided a physical, shadow, momentary, sanctification. Animal ritual provided a physical, shadow, momentary sanctification. So it it served for the cleansing of the flesh. It left a physical people physically sanctified, physically able to function in their Levitical priesthood. They could could, uh, participate in Passover, in Pentecost, in uh, tabernacles, in the Feast of Trumpets. They could partake of the meals with the priests and the Levites. They could do all of the ritual observances that the Jewish people were given. And the animal ritual provided for that. Also, shadow sanctification. Realizing that it's only shadow doctrine being communicated, it's not reality. There is shadow and there is substance. You and I function in the substance. The church age really has very little ritual. We're going to observe communion today. And between communion and baptism, we really have, those are the only two ordinances for the church age. And, uh, and it's not even a ritual. It's thought of ritualistically, but it's not really a ritual. We call it an ordinance of the church, not a ritual. See? 
And I think that distinction is a beautiful thing. I would have loved it if in, oh, the second, third, fourth centuries of the church, if they would have really embraced the book of Hebrews and and realized, you know what? They had ritual, we have reality. They had a calendar, we have day after day as long as it's called today. They had feasts and festivals and, and we have the daily worship of Jesus Christ. Sadly though, if you're familiar with church history, uh, the Roman church came along and invented a whole liturgical calendar. They invented an entire thing with Easter and Advent and all this other stuff, Epiphany and things you never heard of. And they, 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 they put their priests in robes and uh, they color code the decorations and things. And they created out of their own invention what's not in the book of Hebrews, what's not in Leviticus. They, they replicated a, a ritualistic structure, a liturgical structure for Christianity. And it's not anywhere in the New Testament. It's not in uh, Hebrews, certainly. And I think a better understanding of Hebrews would have fixed all that back uh, in the day. But here we are. A physical sanctification, a shadow sanctification, a momentary sanctification. And even if it's good for a whole year, that's still momentary on the eternal scheme of things. The blood of Christ provides a spiritual, substantial, eternal sanctification. And that is a complete corollary. Spiritual over physical, substantial over shadow, eternal over uh, momentary. We have a spiritual, substantial, eternal sanctification by the blood of Christ. We are made holy. Not just in in a body ritual. We are made holy in reality to stand before, we're sinners standing before a holy God because we are sinners saved by grace. Made holy by the justification in Christ Jesus. And so I hope these things are clear. Uh, Acts 15, or right here in this chapter, Hebrews 9, 14, how much more? Infinitely more. Cleanses us, cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Acts 15, 9 agrees with this. Talking about Jews and Gentiles with no distinction. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. In the Levitical priesthood, it was the Jewish people that were represented. The high priest went in there and he had the 12 tribes written on those stones on his breastplate. He was there to represent the Jewish people. They were the ones that stood before the holy God, not the Gentiles. Not the Gentiles. But in Christ, all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, one body in Christ, with a spiritual cleansing, having our hearts cleansed by faith, it says. Titus 2.14. Titus 2 and verse 14. Here is our Christian walk described here in Titus 2. Verse 11 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the happy hope, or the blessed hope if you insist, but it's the Makarios Elpis, the happy hope, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us, why? To redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds." This is us. This is what we're called to do. And we're called to serve. 
Our salvation is a serving status. And so we walk not in the, the deadness of dead works, in the, the newness of life. We present the living sacrifices. We present ourselves as living sacrifices, which we'll see here shortly. Finally, Hebrews 10.22, the access that we have through the veil. The access that we have through the veil, all of us. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's all of us. We're not going into an earthly replica. We're going into the heavenly reality by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. We, we walk in that newness of life, that living way as living sacrifices, a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. And you'll notice uh, spiritual, substantial, eternal sanctification. Our heart in full assurance of faith, our heart sprinkled clean, our bodies and our, uh, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we've got body and soul all sanctified here by the blood of Christ. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Not only do we enter, we've got stuff to do once we're there. You know, Think about it. The high priest, he entered, and then what did he do? Turned right around and came right back out. But we enter and we've got an entire priestly function to engage in with Jesus Christ. We get to be intercessors one for another. We get to plead for our fallen world. We get to lift up kings and all who are in authority. We can have a powerful prayer ministry for politics, for our nation, for current events, uh, having salt and light benefit to our nation, to our culture around us. And that's really what we get to here by the end of verse 14 then, the idea that we are living sacrifices for the living God. The living God takes no pleasure in dead works. The living God takes no pleasure in dead works. See, it's far more than just animal sacrifices being fulfilled in Christ. It's far more than just, well, those sacrifices died and we're living sacrifices. That's part of it. But beyond that, legal observance, observance of the law itself. We're not under law, we're under grace. We want to be clear on this that functioning under law, works under law, are all dead works. You ever think about that? Because even if you're the best legalist ever in the history of legalists, you don't measure up. You will fail. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus is the only human that ever kept 100%, never sinned, fulfilled the law where we could not keep it. So the living God is well served by the bride of Christ and her living sacrifices. And I hope that from this study onward, having brought us through the book of Hebrews, I hope that the Lord Jesus Christ will equip this flock, this congregation is going to become a powerful congregation in our priestly ministry, in our living sacrifice, in our living walk. Romans 6.13 says we walk in that newness of life. Romans 6 and verse 13 Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And this is so much bigger than just a a moral homily, just a moral message. You know, the preacher says, quit sinning so much, right? It's so much bigger than that. This is our living walk. This is our priesthood on display. We are worshiping God in our priesthood in this way. And it says, do not go on presenting. 
the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Remember when Jesus appeared, he appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. When we appear, we appear as priests in Christ. And so we present ourselves. We stand before him. We enter within the veil and we present ourselves before him. And we're not here to sin, all right? We're here to bear fruit. We're here to worship. We're here to to, uh, represent uh, before our Father's throne of grace. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6? Here I am, Lord, right? Send me. That's us all day, every day, standing before God. And we get to go to a holy place that, that Isaiah couldn't imagine in his prophetic vision. We are standing in the holy place before the Father and uh, we present ourselves to Him, our members, our body, as a living sacrifice. We are instruments of righteous, righteousness to God. And this is our blessing. Romans 12 follows up with Romans 6. Romans 12. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Let me stop right there. When you are putting somebody under a sacred oath, admonishing them, and you bring something to witness, like the mercies of God, this is worse than a command. This is actually uh, an invocation whereby in this parakaleo exhortation, he is calling the mercies of God to bear witness. That becomes the collateral, if you will. Right? If you don't pay back your loan, you lose your collateral. If you don't fulfill this command, this exhortation, the collateral for this command is the mercies of God. So when you fail to present yourself before God as a living sacrifice, what are you forsaking? You're throwing away the collateral of the mercies of God. That's what Paul urged you by. This becomes very powerful language of invocation. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You want a biblical definition of worship? Right there. Living your life according to the Word of God. Presenting your body daily for His service. Here I am, use me. All that I am, all that I have, all that I do is for the Father's good pleasure. That's my priestly worship. People confuse things that, you know, going to a church and singing a song or raising your hands or getting an emotional feeling and they call that worship. No. The Bible says your worship is presenting yourself to the Father as a living and holy sacrifice. And so here I am. Use me. A living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That's the sweet smelling savor acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The biggest obstacle to living out all this is believers that don't live in the Word of God. They're not being transformed. They're not being, if you don't saturate your soul with doctrine, if you're not living in the Word of God, if you 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 just visit it occasionally, well, what's that? See, I've I've been to Kiev seven times, or eight times. Uh, I've been... uh, so I've visited, I've visited quite often, I think. I've visited Kiev more than I've visited other places. And I can find my way around a little bit. I might get kind of lost, but I'll work it out in time. I don't live there. That's the difference. 
Some people treat the Bible like, like Kiev. They visit every now and then. And, uh, and it's been so long since the last time they were there, they really don't remember how to find some things. And that's the thing, because it's been so long since they've been in the Bible, they can't, really can't remember how to find some things. All right? But where you live constantly, year-round, all the time where you live, you ever get lost in your own house? I hope not. You know, I can find the bathroom. I can find the refrigerator. I'm good. Okay? I can find my bedroom. I can find my office. I know every room of my house. Is that, do you know your Bibles like that? Are you in the Word of God daily? Are you constantly in truth? Are you living in the Word of God? Is the Word of God living in you? I in you, and uh, we saw the abiding in Christ, abiding in the vine last hour in John 15. All right. And so this renewal of your mind is critical. Without it, you will never prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Without it, you will be conformed to this world. And I tell you, I know Christians that are just as worldly as unbelievers. Why? Because they're not in the Word of God. What do you expect? If you're not in the Word of God and you're not transformed, you're going to be just as worldly as an unbeliever in your, in your mental attitude outlook. And so we see it here. 2 Corinthians 6.16. Another passage that addresses our temple status and the worship that we offer. Is why we have to be cautious in our associations, why we have to t- be careful related to being unequally yoked. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, all right? And that could be marriage. You don't want to marry an unbeliever, but it could also be a business partnership. It could be other associations whereby you find yourself bound and placed uh, in, a, in a horrible spot where their worldly thinking is going to have consequences in your decision-making. In any binding situation like that, any partnership like that is not acceptable in the will of God. What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship have light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now this brings the whole metaphor around to where we are now in Christ. The fact that He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. That we are believer priests in the church age. And the whole body of Christ as a corporate structure is being built into this temple. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. That's us. The Jewish people today are lamenting the fact that their temple's been destroyed for 2,000 years. They want to build a new one. They're ready to build a new one. And prophecy tells us they will build a new one. In fact, there's two future temples coming up. One that they're going to build in unbelief that Antichrist will defile. Uh, That's going to get destroyed. And then a better one that's going to be built by Jesus himself for his millennial kingdom. There are two future Jewish temples that will be built. Neither of those, though, is us. We're the body of Christ. We are the Melchizedek priesthood temple of the living God. And here it's described. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is our application in the body of Christ. So we are the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. We bring living sacrifices, which is suitable to bring as uh, members of this temple. Galatians 2.19 Galatians 2.19 Paul says, For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. Understand what that is? 
I think there's too many Christians, they're not taught. I think it's legalism that creeps in through poor Bible teaching. And what ends up happening, they think that if they can just become better legalists, they'll be better Christians and God will be happier with them. What they need to do is die to the law and live to God. What they need to do is embrace grace and what the living sacrifices are all about. And quit trying to do things in their own power, in their own human effort. As we saw last hour, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not in my power, not in my human effort, and not impressing God with all the great things I can do. It's what God does in and through me for His good pleasure. And so through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Don't you just love this verse? Galatians 2.20, my mother's favorite verse. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. This is what we're doing here, walking in the newness of life. It's Christ in us. The life that we now live is Christ in us. Hebrews 3.12. Hebrews 3.12. Again, living sacrifices with a cleansed conscience. Take care, brethren. Remember this warning? Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from who? From the living God. We serve the living God. That's what our priesthood is all about. And so we don't want to stand before the living God and hand Him our dead works. He will not be pleased with that any more than He accepted Cain and Cain's vegetables. All right? We have to stand before Him as living sacrifices. And then we will be well accepted and well pleased, even as God was well pleased with Abel and uh, the lamb that Abel brought. It goes on to say, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. That's a priestly function. That's a priestly function when you see it not only here but also in chapter 10. It's a priestly function. What we do as we minister before the Father is we are encouraging one another. We become our own goad. We become our own uh, support structure in this priesthood. But take care lest there be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart. You know that. I know that. Scripture says that. Is there a sin anywhere that an unbeliever can do and a believer can't do? Oh, we can do. We've got our volition. We've got our fallen nature still. See? Because when He gave us that new nature, what did He do to the old nature? Nothing. It's still sitting there. Okay? We carry that thing around as long as we got this mortal body. We'll finally get rid of it though when we depart from the body. We're absent from the body and at home with Jesus Christ. But only until then. So death or rapture, until then, as Paul cries out, who will set me free from this body of death? So take care lest there be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart and encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why if you're not a part of a local assembly, if you don't have a body of believers that comes alongside and encourages you like this, well then that's a tough road. You're out there without that mutually reciprocal, supportive uh, encouragement structure whereby your fellow priests can urge you and you can urge them as far as this walk is concerned. Chapter 10 and verse 31, we saw a little bit ago, we can look at it again. Uh, 
Actually, I didn't quite get down to verse 31. We were looking at the earlier verses, talking about entering the veil and holding fast. And you'll notice um, in 10.24 we're told, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I think that goes marvelously well with 3.12 and 3.13, encouraging one another day after day as long as it's called today. Here it says encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, when's the rapture going to happen? I don't know. I thought it was yesterday. I was disappointed that it didn't happen yesterday. So now I'm convinced it's today. And, uh, and then if I get disappointed again, I'm going to be convinced that it's tomorrow. And even before tomorrow, it's going to happen while I'm sleeping tonight. If I go to bed on this earth, not yet raptured, well then I'm, my prayer is, my anticipation is that the trumpet's going to sound and going to wake me up and, and uh, that's going to happen before I get up in the morning. Day after day, as long as it's called a day. And all the more as you see the rapture of the church drawing near. Notice now, there's a warning in this passage too, just like in, uh, in chapter 6, there's a warning here and um, about willful sinning after coming to the knowledge of the truth. And what happens when a believer priest who should know better decides to bring strange fire to the altar, decides to insult the Spirit of grace? It's ugly. All right? And uh, as it talks about here, trampling underfoot the Son of God in verse 29, regarding His unclean, the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified, insulting the Spirit of grace. You want to be a carnal believer? I don't. Not for a moment. Not, not longer. I mean, when I get convicted, I'm confessing and getting back in fellowship again. Keep short accounts every time. I'm not going to insult the Spirit of grace by living in prolonged carnality. For the, for the living God is the God who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay and the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of who? The living God. I think it's more terrifying for living sacrifices than it ever was for Israel walking uh, in the deadness of their works under the law. Don't get me wrong, it was terrifying for them too, but how much more terrifying is it for us? For the living sacrifices to uh, fall into the hands of the living God. That's a, that's, that's a warning. It's a powerful warning. Finally, chapter 12. Preview of coming attractions. We'll be here before you know it. Some of these descriptions are interesting and, uh, and really um, difficult. Verse 22 causes a lot of arguments. Uh, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Just focus on that for now, Okay. Israel, they went to Mount Sinai and they were at the bottom of a quaking mountain and they were terrified. We go to heaven. We function in the heavenly places. And uh, there's a difference to the city of the living God. Verse 28, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. You know, think about their kingdom. How many times was their kingdom shaken? How many times did they go? They they were conquered. They went into captivity. They went into a, a global dispersion. They've got an unshakable kingdom they will receive when Christ returns. We have one already. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. We have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. The living sacrifice church can worship the living God with an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I just think it's, it's well worth noting 
as glorious as that Shekinah glory was, and how every high priest passed within that veil to his trepidation and in in the the vulnerability of of death should he approach the Shekinah glory in an unworthy manner, right? Remember Nadab and Abihu, they burned strange fire before the Lord and he blasted them there on the spot. As serious as that was, how much more? Because we don't go to a Shekinah glory in an earthly replica. We stand before the Father Himself in Christ, standing before the Father. Our God is a consuming fire. So why are we not consumed? (laughs) Well, it's part of what we're going to be learning here in chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12. It's the position we have in Christ. It's the new creation that we have. We are already the new creation in Christ. The heavens and earth are going to be consumed by fire. New heavens and new earth will be created. Uh, We don't fear any of that because we're already the new creation in Christ. This is the first time ever that the inhabitants of a created realm are prepared before the created realm comes to exist. How crazy is that? I think it's beautiful. You ever think about that? He made the oceans and he put fish in there. Made the sky, here's here's some birds. Dry land, animals. I think he did the same thing with angels. He created the heavens and then populated them with a heavenly host, made the angels. It's always been create the realm first and then populate the realm with creatures suitable for that existence. Not so with the new creation. The new heavens and the new earth aren't here yet, but the new creation is. You and me in Christ. Old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. And it's a, it's a marvelous thing to contemplate related to that. All right. Anyway, that's not on this study, but that's just extra credit. No charge. There's uh, the price of admission gets you all of this. The living God. The living God. All right. And so, verse 15. Hebrews 9.15. As awesome as all of this is, are you uh, interested in the so what what now? What does this mean? What does he do with all this? So how much more? The, the blood of Christ has cleansed your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He said, tetelestai, it is finished. He had finished the Father's work. And what did that do? What was he able to do on that basis? He cleansed the heavenly temple. He presented himself as a high priest of the good things to come. And he cleansed you. He cleansed you and me the body of Christ in the church age. And now he has not just, not just the head of the church, but the body. Not just the, the one high priest, but the entire priesthood united with Christ. An entire priesthood now that is the living sacrifice, cleansed conscience, uh, servants of the living God. And so for this reason, as the high priest with a cleansed priesthood, He is also the mediator of a new covenant. All right, so now we, once again, we got to touch upon this new covenant. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And it goes on to say, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. All right, there's a lot to unpack in this verse. But understand what this verse is advancing the story. 
This verse is advancing the content, the doctrinal material. It's not rehashing. It's not recapping. It's not restating. Verse 15 is different than verses 13 and 14. But it builds on it. It takes it beyond. And so, yes, He cleansed the temple. Yes, He sanctified us. Yes, He's done all of that. Beyond which, now, He is also the mediator of a new covenant. All right? Which we will see happen after Armageddon. We will see happen in the second advent of Jesus Christ when He returns, when He brings the kingdom from heaven, when He takes a seat on the throne of David in Jerusalem, when uh, Israel is brought into their kingdom, then He will place them under the new covenant. Not before. Not now. Certainly not now. Israel is still in unbelief right now. All right. So for this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant. Now we want to understand some things, and I think we're going to be real short on time today because of uh, circumstances in Communion Sunday. So let me introduce it, and then we'll have next week to really hammer this through. Because we've studied it before. We've studied it in earlier chapters, and we've been very clear. The new covenant from Jeremiah 31-31 is not with the church. It's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it comes about after these things. It can't come about until the great tribulation humbles Israel. Right? That until they go through tribulation, they're not prepared for the kingdom. And so these things become necessary. Something else that becomes necessary is all those Old Testament believers need to be justified. They need to be justified and and Mosaic law didn't do it. But the death of Christ did. And so the death of Christ is going to bring them to a place where they can enter the kingdom. That's a study here, and that's introduced here in verse 15. All right. Israel as a redeemed nation stood in a broken relationship to their Redeemer. Understand, that's, that's Israel's status when the author of Hebrews is writing this text. That's, the, that's Israel's status today. Israel as a redeemed nation. Remember, God brought them out of Egypt. The Red Sea parted. They walked through. The Red Sea came crashing down behind them, and they've never gone back. All right? The nation is redeemed. Just like your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. It's a one way door out of darkness into light. Israel is a redeemed people. Even when they're walking in unbelief, they continue to be a redeemed people walking in unbelief. Like we were warned about in. Hebrews 3. So Israel as a redeemed nation stood in a broken relationship to their Redeemer, having broken the covenant they were placed under as a redeemed nation. Alright, so just contemplate these things. I'm I'm introducing it and it gets into some deep realms, but you're going to have seven days to think about it now before we come back next week. But understand as a nation, they are a redeemed nation. They're the only covenant nation on this earth. They are God's nation in the midst of all the Gentiles. And yet they're standing in a broken relationship. My covenant which they broke. And I'll save Exodus for next week, but just Jeremiah 31, notice, 31 and 32. Isaiah, Jeremiah, here we go. If you get to Lamentations, you've gone too far. Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Church has no part of that. It's Israel. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. Again, that's Israel. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Again, that's Israel. He didn't bring the church fathers out of Egypt. He didn't make a covenant with the church fathers. He made a covenant with Israel. They were the covenant nation. But now they're in a broken relationship. Because see what else it says here in verse 32. The day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. It's a broken covenant. So what's going to fix that? How is it that they're going to make it into the kingdom being party to this broken covenant, responsible for breaking it? And so the consequences of that, the Levitical consequences of that are judgment. Judgment, dispersion, national discipline. Because remember with the Mosaic law was very conditional. Obey me and these good things are happening and disobey me and these bad things are happening. They got to recite the blessings and the cursings on these mountains side by side. Six tribes here, six tribes there. And, and if, uh, if the Levitical priesthood is going to get them into the millennial kingdom, well then they've got a big problem because they're under the curses. They've violated that covenant. They are guilty as charged. And so thankfully now, by virtue of what our Savior accomplished on the cross. Do you know how many things He did on that cross? He did so many things. All right? Because clearly, He paid for your sins so you can have eternal life. Isn't that a great thing? All right? But don't think for a minute that's the only thing He was doing there. He also had a corporate function related to the Jewish people. He also had a redemptive function pertaining to a broken covenant all right, which is what this verse Hebrews 9:15 is talking about. My covenant which they broke. Verse 33 says, "But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days," declares the Lord. All right. And so this then brings in all of the context of of Jeremiah and the tribulation and all the the uh, things, the time of Jacob's trouble, all of the uh, the issues there related to God's dealing with the Jewish nation. See, dealings, by the way, that are on hold for, for now. Presently, the whole program for Israel is on hold while he calls out a bride for his son. The church age is a parenthesis in God's plan for the Jewish people. Today, if a Jewish person gets saved, they're ushered into the body of Christ. They become a, a church age believer priest like you and me. And they're going to go with us in the rapture. Only after the rapture then will God resume his dealings with the corporate nation of Israel. And then he'll begin to administer his wrath and his discipline upon them in the age of tribulation. Because that's what it's going to take to prepare that generation for the coming of, uh, of Christ. All right. We're going to have to close here. The, um, these issues are significant and they're substantial. And I hope when you come back next week that you're going to really put your thinking caps on and be prepared for what happens to a nation, a covenant nation who's in violation of their treaty, of their covenant. And what's then the consequences of violating that covenant? Say, well, the only thing they can hope for is wrath. But Jesus accepts the wrath, and he provides now a new covenant. Okay? That becomes significant. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your truth. 
And uh, Father, you're bringing us into some very deep realms. Realms in which, honestly, Father, um, good men have disagreed over the years and, and faithful men. Louis Bear Schaefer thought there were two new covenants, one for Israel and one for the church. And uh, put that in his theology, Father. And we, we uh, realize he had reasons for that and there's much to be said for that, but also much to be said against that and we handle it differently. I thank you, uh, I thank you for all of these things, Father. I thank you for uh, ongoing studies. I thank you for the, the Friday group that I'm in with Pastor Robbie Dean and 20 other pastors around the country. And uh, right now, Father, we're, we're going through this very issue, the New Covenant. What is the church's relationship to the New Covenant? And I thank you, uh, as iron sharpens iron, these uh, Friday morning conference calls are just powerful sessions, and I, uh, I look forward to them week by week. So, Father, uh, I thank you for the ministry that you provided here, for teaching us how to function as priests in Christ, for opening our eyes to the living sacrifice and how we function before the living God. Uh, thank you for opening our eyes to see our place in the Holy of Holies, not the earthly replica, but the heavenly reality. They had shadow, we have substance. Father, I rejoice in the reality we have in Christ. And I pray that we will understand it better, and I pray that we would exercise it um, in a more full and complete and powerful way. Because our priesthood is designed to worship you and to encourage one another. Father, we live in a day and age that needs a lot of encouragement. And so I do pray that this doctrine will come alive and, and empower each one of us in this way. And Father, I also pray for anybody that might be here this morning that, that without eternal life, without the heart made clean, without their conscience cleansed, without the priesthood that's provided by faith in Christ. It may be that uh, this morning is the first day that all of this has started to make sense. And that uh, it may be that up till today, Folks have been trusting in their own works, their own righteousness, their own merit, being a good person and being good enough. I pray that today is the day that the reality of their sin hits them in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the value of that blood on the cross, the value of our substitute taking our place. We're the sinners, but He became the sin sacrifice that we might have eternal life. Today can be the day. We've read it in the verses. We're praying about it now. We're going to portray it here shortly, Father, in our communion service. And I pray that this might be the day in which, um, in which a lost soul comes to faith in Christ. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.